0: used to the want to the to be I just to my mind Welcome to Christlike Thinking, a podcast dedicated to discussing how Christians can live out Romans 12:2 which tells us do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. On today's episode of Christlike Thinking, I'm talking with Dr. Brian H. Cosby, author of a new book, Giving Up Gimmicks, Reclaiming Youth Ministry from an Entertainment Culture. Dr. Cosby is Associate Pastor of Youth and Families at Carriage Lane Presbyterian Church in Peachtree City, Georgia. Dr. Cosby, welcome to Christlike Thinking. Thanks for having me. To begin with, you mentioned worldview a few times in your book, and I wondered if you could kind of give me an idea, like just a quick sort of definition, what worldview means to you.
1: Okay. Uh, it is the the lens through which we see the world um, and as a believer. Um, you know, my mind and heart have been shaped by God's revealed Word, and, um, and so I seek to view life and, and this world and through that lens. So, in, in, and maybe in particular, uh, a gospel focus, uh, now that I'm a, a redeemed child of God.
0: So you mentioned the gospel focus, of course, and that's a, it's a big theme throughout your book, Giving Up Gimmicks. So what is the gospel to you?
1: The gospel is that Jesus has accomplished his life, death, and resurrection for us, everything that God has required of us, and that we are far more sinful than we would ever imagine, and yet through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, we are loved and accepted and adopted into God's family.
0: Did you grow up in a Christian family?
1: I did. I grew up in a Christian family in, on Sigma Mountain, Tennessee, which is outside of Chattanooga, and uh, was part of a uh, Presbyterian church, a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, as a little as a little kid. I um, grew up in a Christian home and kind of went through a variety of uh, struggles through middle school, high school uh, years, and came to faith. Saving Faith in 1999.
0: Okay, how old were you then?
1: Uh, Let's see, I was
0: 17, years old. And then when did you decide to go into ministry? I was the following year, 2000. I
1: was a counselor at a camp and leading some some music and teaching at a camp and outside of Chattanooga. And one night uh, after leading worship, I just felt a tremendous sense of peace about Doing vocational ministry, and since then uh, had that call, that inward call, confirmed by many people around me in the church. And so I kept pursuing that call into college and seminary.
0: So you went to Samford University and then to seminary?
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct.
0: One of the things that interested me in the book is when you, you talked about your experience in Cambodia and how that changed your worldview. Can you share a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Uh, 2007. uh, I was part of a team that went to Cambodia, and uh, and I'm just gonna kind of, you know, show my cards here. But I initially I was not kind of looking forward to it internally. It was all selfish. It was all sinful. Mm -hmm. um, But I was not looking forward to just being in a different culture, different climate, hot (laughs) summer uh, jungle kind of climate. So I was just kind of not looking forward to it. I, I saw many pictures and. But going there, when, I, when we started walking into some of the villages, at one point uh, I was asked to hop on the back of a motorcycle and go to a small church. It wasn't really a church. It was just kind of an outdoor uh, lean-to. And, uh, but I had a lot of people that came, and I was asked to speak to the crowd. And it was through that experience of speaking that I saw so many people coming up to this location, carrying one another and, and uh, supporting one another, feeding one another. And I got a small glimpse of the church being the church, of carrying one, each other's burdens and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. And, and uh, that they emphasized, it was interesting, because they emphasized the importance of, they had a strong ecclesiology. They had church officers and church membership, even in this little remote village in Cambodia. And it, it showed me the importance of the church community and even the appointed officers and, and structure even of a, a local church.
0: Yeah, that's uh, another thing I going along with that, I noticed a lot of the good stories you have in your book revolve around uh, mission trips to, you know, Mexico and uh, you know Native American areas and things. So it seems like missions has been, you know, a, a big influence on you over time.
1: It has and I believe that even God uses short-term work not only for the purposes of the trip, but also to to call missionaries. I heard a report today that 65% of missionaries, when asked or polled, said that they were called to missions between the ages of 11 and 14. Wow.
0: Um,
1: and so, yeah, and so uh, you know, I think that God uses missions to even call His missionaries.
0: Yeah. Also, one thing that struck me, though, you mentioned that's 2007 when you went to Cambodia, and of course, 1999, you got saved. So about 2000, you felt called to ministry, went to Sanford. So Cambodia was such a big change for you. What failure, if you would want to call it a failure, I don't know. Um, so what what prevented you from having that sort of epiphany in those years prior to going to Cambodia?
1: Um, I think there's a general movement among my generation 30s age and younger to look down upon the church as church as an organized church
0: right
1: and uh, there's a movement of just the me and jesus movement of me and jesus syndrome it's just religion is private christianity is private and even membership very few churches today are even emphasizing membership and the role of the church and so uh i think being part of my generation and the the groups that I was in devalued the the role of Lord's Day worship, for example, of family worship, of just those kinds of things.
0: Obviously, that's changed for you. Do you think there's a movement to change that among people your age?
1: Um, I I do think there is a movement among the younger generations uh, toward a Reformed faith, Young Restless Reformed, Colin Hansen's. Piece on that, but right. and and maybe as an outflowing of this kind of revival of Reformed faith among the younger generation, there there does seem to be some interest in abs- more in- interest in absolutes in structure because I think it's a reaction against postmodernism and and a, a relativistic you know society that mm-hmm. devalues the role of just absolutes. It's kind of refreshing to come somewhere to a church now that says this is. What we believe and why we believe it, and we're going to be clear and honest about it. And I think that's refreshing to a lot of people these days. And so I think there is a movement and a and a group of people who are turning back to the age-old faith.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think the the honesty that you're talking about is important and is a big factor uh, for a lot of people. Uh, so. Uh, We've talked about your worldview. What do you think is, how would you describe the worldview of teenagers today that you come across?
1: There's several things. I'll, I'll just kind of list them mainly, I guess, that, that we've been looking at and studying, and um, even in my uh, last decade of just being in student ministry. One thing is there's a, a number one fear and poll after poll, of students and teenagers is being mm-hmm. alone. Right. Uh, they, 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 uh, they feel rejected. They feel alone. And so the, the natural outworking of that is there's this, this visceral quest and desire for intimacy and community. They, they want to be known, and they want to be loved at the same time. And, uh, and so they're, they're seeking this intimate community. And the problem is they've turned to Facebook and other things that are just simply virtual Mm-hmm. They can hide behind the facade of their Facebook page or whatever, and and so they're starving for true intimacy, uh, true community. Right. Um, there's also a movement I think that many are there's extreme narcissism, and so there's a there's the result of that is an I'm bored community mentality that you know between one pleasure high and another mm-hmm. uh, you're bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's not a sense of thinking about the other person or serving the other person.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the things that struck me as I was reading is, is when you discussed how teenagers today are both busy and bored. Yes. <laughs> Could you explain that, son?
1: Yeah. I, I think part of the busyness I would attribute to a, a child driven. Fam, ch- children that are driving the family schedule and still, instead of the parents setting the course of their family, uh, they're letting sports and, and extracurricular activities and all kinds of things fill their family schedule. That they don't have time to um, be a family and to be together. And when they are together, it's typically around the, the TV. And so there's there's a loss at home, and so they're incredibly busy. They're their plates are filled with everything, and, the, and their rationale and their explanation for that is so that they get scholarship to college. Uh, right. You know, the, the scholarship or you know, the college, are looking for a full schedule. Oh, this person can balance and schedule all of these things and maintain a good grade and have a good ACT or SAT score. And so they're incredibly busy, and yet at the same time, between these moments, it's incredible boredom. Um, because they're just looking for something to satisfy, something to um, help them have more pleasure in life and and happiness. You ask teenagers, what's the goal in life? It's happiness, to be happy, not to serve, not to be faithful, none of those things.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned there the goal to be happy, which, of course, is the big part of moralistic therapeutic deism that you discuss Mm -hmm. in the book. And it seems like everywhere I turn now, I'm reading or hearing something about moralistic (laughs) therapeutic deism, Um, But there are probably some people listening who have never heard of that. So how would you Uh summarize summarize that?
1: Yeah, moralistic therapeutic deism. There's a, a couple of sociologists, Christian Smith, for example, who coined this term to describe the religion of American teenagers. And basically what it is, if you take those three words, moralistic therapeutic deism, that teenagers believe that God just wants you to be good uh, that, that, you know, your goal in life is just to be nice, be good. Uh, that's what God expects of you. It's just that's a therapeutic that you call on God only, you know, to help you feel better. And so when nations go through tragedies, 9-11, other major events, school shootings, there's a national call for prayer. And so God will help you through those tough times. He's, he's therapeutic mm-hmm. in that way. And Deism right. though is that he's, he's a clockmaker. He, he basically started things, but then he's not involved in your life at all. Uh, maybe he's involved in your life when you go to church on Sunday morning for that hour, but other than that, he's really not involved in your life. He kind of stands at a distance. God is watching us from a distance, and he's at an arm length, arm's length. And uh, and so that's that's what has been described as America's religion and as far as teenagers go I've argued uh, recently on the gospel coalition that it's not just a problem in the youth ministry it's a problem in the church
0: right definitely the the youth are learning this from the Absolutely. the older people in the church and I think Absolutely. to the to the deism I'd add you know one one unique aspect from say, you know, enlightenment deism is that while, while God is off in the distance, he does show up when you need him to fix a problem. <laughs> That's right. the, the idea. I, I don't need God in my day-to-day life, but when something goes wrong, I expect yep. God to fix the problem for me.
1: Right. Divine bellhop. Right.
0: Yeah, you're divine bellhop. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is, that is a problem. And I think everyone I've talk to, because, you know, I, I hear it everywhere, of course, but, you know, when I mention it to people, everybody sort of, you know, has that look like, oh, yeah, that that's, that's the exact description of what I see all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, in terms of your uh, view of ministry, another thing that I liked in in the book, and kind of was interesting and surprising to me, was this idea that youth ministry is sort of a necessary result of the breakdown in American families. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. Uh, You know, youth ministry is a a fairly new phenomenon. Um, And it's interesting because when people felt that the church was not doing their job, uh, in, in public education, for example, public schools and reaching out to students, uh, you had the growth in parachurch organizations like uh, in the 1940s, for example, with the start of Young Life. And, right. um, and so what happened was these parachurch organizations, whether it was intended or not, entered into a direct competition with the church uh, in reaching out to students in, in schools. And so what the church had to do in response and reaction to that was develop their own uh, community groups of students. And at the same time, you started having families, you know, at 50s and 60s families that started to lose ground, not just, it eventually became, you know, now it's very, you know, fewer and fewer people are even getting married and many people are being divorced. But, but then it was, there was an, that fathers advocated their role in, in leading the home spiritually. And, All of a sudden, what you started to see is a breakdown of the family spiritually. And then it started to be the breakdown of the family physically, that divorce happened and broken homes. And and now there is a need. (laughs) There is a real need for student ministry, not just reaching to students but to their families, oftentimes through their children.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree the need exists because of failures with families. But I I wonder, whenever I hear things like that, you know, the idea that it's a new thing, I wonder, is it really new? Because I think of, you know, the the Sunday school movement with Robert Rakes and, you know, children wandering the streets, or even thinking of back with Jonathan Edwards and the uh, young people's Bible scandal, you know, these young men harassing women in town and, you know, things like that. And it seems like when, one thing I like about reading Christian history or biographies is I'm constantly amazed to to read. Wait, they had the exact same problems back then. Mm-hmm. You know, we always think that you know the world's falling apart now, but you read you read some 171800s theologian complaining about how so many people are heathens, you know, around them, nobody's saved, and it, so I wonder, is it maybe that we're recognizing the problems now, or or is it actually well, more severe?
1: Uh, I think it's more accepted. The You know, like in the early 1700s with, with Edwards, uh, and even the Puritans of the, of the 17th century, even though people were not less sinful back then and were more sinful now, I think there is more of an accepted, uh, sinful way of living now than back then. So it's not that we've become worse, necessarily, I don't think, morally. It's that it's become more acceptable, the things that happen, the things that the idea of if, you, if someone, you know, a Puritan in the 17th century or later 1600s were to look at the landscape in America today and see the divorce rates and those kinds of things and people just not getting married, I think there would be alarm. Right. Uh, so it's not new, I don't think, in the sense of, uh, you know, teens, troubled teens. I mean, that's just kind of I mean, even the book of Proverbs.
0: You know, <laughs>
1: speak about young age and, and, uh, and, and Paul talks about fleeing youthful lusts. Uh, so that's that's definitely not new, um, but I, I do think there is more that's more accepted now. It's more okay and quote unquote normal. And so uh, that, probably that's the only new thing about it, maybe.
0: Right, and and I guess maybe now we're dealing with more people who have no background in you know the the story of the Bible, or you know at least. You know, years ago, most people knew the the basic stories of the Bible and things like that. But yeah, I come yeah. in
1: contact with students all the time. You know, even here in the good old South, and, and I'm in Georgia, uh, South of Atlanta. Uh, people I come in contact in our church that have never heard of Adam and Eve. Oh, never wow. heard of them. That would be a first, I think. For hundred years ago, at least people would have some sense of, okay, I know who I've heard of Adam and Eve. Right. Um,
0: yeah, I, I got saved when I was 19, and I can remember, you know, some of those early times when, you know, somebody would tell some story from the Bible, and I'd smile and nod like I had any idea what they were talking about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> also, in early in the book, you you briefly mentioned Doug Fields' purpose-driven youth ministry, and then later on, you kind of deal more specifically with it. I was wondering if you could sort of compare and contrast your ideas on youth ministry with how you perceive the purpose-driven model of youth ministry? Let me say that I do
1: appreciate the idea of being purposeful and intentional in youth ministry. I think that Doug Fields has given a lot of very helpful daily things and how to go about youth leaders and volunteers and just a lot of practical advice. You know, he's, he has a wealth of experience there. What I was trying to do specifically was to, uh, was to think theologically about ministry not just being purposeful about why we do what we do, but to think theological, theologically about ministry, uh, that we want to have a theologically informed or a, a theologically driven ministry, one that is connected. So basically what we're trying to do is connect our theology to our methodology or our belief to our practice. And obviously I'm coming from a, a reform perspective, um, being in the Presbyterian Church of America. And, uh, and so you run, aclo- you run across passages— You know, like 1 Corinthians 3, 7, either he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so our task is simply to plant and water the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking to God to provide the growth. Our task is not to be worldly, have worldly success in numbers and money and budgets and buildings. Um, And that's why so many people have turned to gimmicks is because, their goal is success, personal success, I think mainly driven by pride. And so because we want to be part of the next movement, the next great wave, the next viral YouTube hit video, we are, we're so much into this trend, even in the churches, that we have succumbed to just doing whatever it takes to get people in there. Whether What I'm trying to communicate in the book is that God not only cares about the content of what we are to deliver, in the gospel, but the, the way we go about it, the, the way we think about it, that we are to look to God to provide the growth to the very things that he's already given us in his word. We don't have to search out for something that's better than what he's given us. Um, we can't outthink God uh, in, in, in the methods and the, the way that he's given us to do ministry.
0: And the, the theological emphasis you mentioned shows up a lot, of course, in, in the book as well, and, and one place that struck me was when you spent a couple pages discussing exegesis and how to interpret the Bible, and I don't okay. think I've ever seen a youth ministry book discuss <laughs> how to interpret the Bible.
1: Yeah, and this is, this you know, I was uh, talking with uh, another group recently, and this, this subject came up that probably a lot of students Ministers and youth pastors spend a lot of time thinking about which event and the, the band and, and the games, whatever, to do, and a little time on preparing, carefully preparing their lesson, or carefully preparing what they're going to teach on. And so often the teaching that's coming across is simply moralism. And so, uh, you know, instead of, and uh, you know, just because a church teaches the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that it teaches. The gospel, and so the book of Joshua. Joshua was strong and courageous, and therefore you should go be strong and courageous too. It's not that Jesus is the truer and better Joshua who leads us into the promised land, and we rest on His merit and what He's done on our behalf. And out of a response to what He's done, we are enabled to be strong and courageous um, because we are so secure in what He has accomplished on our behalf. And so the gospel is oftentimes missed, um, and and th- you're right. You know, when we go to exegesis, um, I would, and that's why I recommend kind of elect you a continu- continua approach to, you know, teaching through scripture, that you just go passage by passage because you can't get better than what God's given. And, and if it's just going on you, what you want to do every week, uh, you're going to skip passages that you just don't want to address. <laughs> and, right. uh, and it's so important to realize context Um, when you go to teach a passage.
0: Right. So this idea of sort of, I guess, expository or, you know, preaching through the Bible, teaching through the Bible, as the case may be, Um, what are you in your youth group teaching through right now?
1: Uh, We are doing the Psalms uh, right now. Um, We're kind of doing a blend of Psalms, and uh, we're also teaching through uh, the Huddleberg Catechism, um, Mm -hmm. which is amazing because no one would think, hey, you know, like Heidelberg, who's gonna read that today? But i had so i had such great response from students uh, in teaching uh, through like a, a you know 16th century catechism. It just addresses the meaningful, relevant questions of life, and I'm finding more and more students really want to hit those topics that are just straightforward and clear and and relevant to all life. And you know, where did suffering come from? Why do I need to pray? why did Jesus have to die? Is is he the only way? I mean, those are all topics that need to be addressed and and everybody's asking and you don't get more relevant than the Bible. And, um, you know, instead of trying to pack in as many, you know, swallowing goldfish and, uh, you know, gimmicks and having Christian magicians and everything else plugged into your ministry. Um, there's nothing more relevant than scripture. Right. And students can see right through all the other stuff and they're just fed up. I think we're training them more and more to be skeptics. We live in a small mm-hmm. print world and they're just trained to be skeptics and they and, you know, I think they're just fed up with this. And I think that's why sixty, eighty percent of them when they graduate, leave. They're just mm-hmm. you know, I didn't I wasn't grounded in the means of grace, um, that, that guy had given to grow his church.
0: Okay. Um well, you mentioned the reformed aspect, of course, coming from a reformed uh, viewpoint. But I noticed uh, I'm a Baptist, so you know, reading your book, I, I saw, of course, a lot of reformed ideas and everything. But it seemed strongly Presbyterian, and obviously you're Presbyterian. But you know, but I wondered, from an audience standpoint, if if you intended this to be mostly targeted toward Presbyterians, or to a wider audience because you know, in, in a couple ways, one I noticed where you spend a couple pages talking about infant baptism and the importance of infant baptism and mm-hmm. you, you slightly ridicule, I think, you know, believers baptism and the idea and, and rightly so in some cases where you have Baptist churches who are baptizing teenagers at 13 years old and then rebaptizing them for recommitments at 16 years mm-hmm. old. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and, and I would agree with some of those problems, but I wonder. Yeah, I, guess, that, I mean, and, I
1: worked in a Baptist sorry. church for three years, mm-hmm. and uh, and what I was trying to point out was a fundamental difference mm-hmm. uh, in how many people think of, of baptism, whether, you know, whether they're or whatever the mode is, mm-hmm. um, is that some, some people go at baptism thinking this is about you and a sign of what you do and a sign of your commitment and a sign of your, you know, it's about you 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 and so if you mess up well you need to get rebaptized <laughs> you messed up again and I was trying to show the difference between that and the, the view that says you no know, baptism is about God and what he has done and the truthfulness and veracity of his promises his covenant promises to his people and the right. baptism every time someone's baptized they are being baptized in the passive you know as a passive verb and I wasn't trying to necessarily ridicule the Baptist faith. I've got, you know, a lot of my friends are are Baptists, and I've, that's that's great. And but I, I think my audience. You ask about audience.
0: Right.
1: I think my audience was really trying to argue for a consistent ministry mm-hmm. um, to reform folk. I, I guess it wasn't necessarily to uh, necessarily to Presbyterians. It just so happens that obviously I'm, I'm Presbyterian. And, right. I'm going to explain how I see how I see the sacraments, for example, as a means of grace, as, as an ordinance mm-hmm. of Christ, something that God uses to to build up His church. So I was trying to explain it in that point of view, rather than just ridiculing, you know, <laughs> uh, religious right. baptism.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely understand. I mean, obviously, if you're Presbyterian, then infant baptism is an important part of your theology and worldview, so you you don't ignore it. But I was wondering about that. And I think one reason it struck me, you know, at my church, I developed sort of like a six month teaching where we went through uh, hermeneutics and talked about how to okay. interpret the Bible. And one example I frequently use uh, when I talk about, you know, the difference between a good interpretation and a bad one is I'll say, you know, there's on, on the bad side, you've got, you know, maybe a stereotypical liberal who will say things like, well, you know, in the in the time the Bible was written, they didn't know the things we know now. So right. I know better than that. And then you go a little bit closer would be say a, a Catholic doctrine where, you know, they really do stick closer to the Bible, but really their interpretation always hinges upon tradition in the church. So they're right. they're going outside the Bible a little bit. And then I'll say Presbyterians and infant baptism is my example for a mm-hmm. good argument. I can respect and say, you know, I, I don't agree with infant baptism, but if I talk to a Presbyterian, they will give me sound biblical arguments. They won't appeal outside the Bible. And, you know, I'll, I'll have arguments for believer's baptism that are biblical
1: sure. as
0: far as I'm pointing only to Bible. And sure. you will point to the Bible. So, we'll different interpretation, but I can respect the fact that I think both sides sure. are trying to be faithful to the Bible.
1: Sure. We're, we're, we're going after the truth. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. In, in another way, I, I perceived maybe a, a definite leaning toward Presbyterianism is you, you mentioned one time you quote John Piper. And then mm-hmm. uh, earlier in this interview, you, you talked about ecclesiology, which I, I always think of Mark Dever. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were a lot of things in the book where I thought you sound a lot like sort of Christian hedonism with John Piper. A lot of your ecclesiology would fit real well with Mark Dever. Um, but you, in your quotes, and you, you have a lot of sources, and they're great sources. Mm-hmm. But you've got Timothy Keller, Philip Reich, and, um, you know, Presbyterians, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I wondered... Obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with Mark Dever and John Mm -hmm. Piper and many others. So was it an intentional desire to mostly use um, Presbyterian sources, or was it just that's what you are most familiar with, or uh, how did that work out?
1: Well, I guess uh, I wasn't necessarily looking for Presbyterian sources. I mean, I used Dutch Reformed and Presbyterian and Baptist and I mean, there's a there's a variety of of people in there. And, you know, when I speak of uh, ecclesiology, I'm kind of going at two things here. One is I'm I want I'm wanting the the students to have a love for the church. Right. That's number one. Um, Whether it's a Baptist church or Presbyterian church, I want them to have a love for the church and not uh, be disillusioned by it. And I think gimmicks adds to that so that's one thing mm-hmm. but the other thing is to have an understanding of like church office for church officers for example you know overseer elder and deacon the importance of these officers in the church and um, and so that's I, I think in a, you know one of the appendix in the book in the back of the book I, I have a, a section on how do you do youth ministry alongside church officers for example right and so uh you know one example i think i gave in the book is uh, i was out of town on a trip and you know at, at our church um the elders they all have shepherding groups of, of families and they they meet with those families in homes they check on them they they call them those kinds of things and you know i was out of town and one of the students had uh, had a back surgery that i couldn't make it for so i called up that family shepherding elder and i said hey could you could you go to the hospital? Could you be with that family? Could you pray with that family? Um, and so youth ministry was happening through the ecclesiology, through the structure of the God-appointed officers in the church. Um, you know, getting students to go alongside deacons as they serve in the community and they do benevolence ministry and those kinds of things, I think is really helpful. Yeah, I, I want to I promote a love for the church but also an understanding uh, a biblical understanding of the importance of shepherding, the importance of elder and deacon and, and those kinds of roles that he's given like in Titus one or you know first Timothy three. So.
0: Right. No, I appreciate that. Um, and that actually probably be a good transition into the, our talk about the, the practical aspects. Um, you mentioned working of course, with other church officers and at one point, in the the book, you discuss a time where you had a a disagreement with an interim pastor at a church who who wasn't fond of the idea of teaching through the Old Testament books. And it was a interim pastor, so maybe you had um, less commitment there, and you were able to say, "I'm sorry, I think the Old Testament's right. important. We're going to do that." You know, but right. if if there was a youth minister who reads this book, becoming convinced of your ideas. Mm-hmm. But happens to be at a church where you know maybe mm-hmm. the senior pastor or elders or other officers think no, we really need to be bringing in magicians and have
1: smoke mm-hmm.
0: machines. How? What would you recommend to that youth minister?
1: Yeah, this is a uh, probably one of the most common questions I get. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there has, I've seen it work well, and I've seen it work very poorly. Uh, okay. Here's some recommendations. Uh, I would start with the leadership of the church instead of going to just the people of the church. Within the the Presbyterian Church, we have elders and deacons, the elders, the presbyters, the elders. uh, They they are charged with governing. And so I I would go to pastors and, and the elders in particular or just leaders. If there's some leaders in the church, that's where I would start. And I would do it through writing, through sitting down, one-on-one talks, all of those things, and it will take time. And the problem is there's expectations not only from parents and youth, but from senior staff at churches. And it, it, a lot of times it takes time. There's been churches where they've, they've basically handed out the book or mm-hmm. you know, they've kind of written their own summary and, and what they think it may not be really what's in the book, but just kind of their thoughts on how things could change. And over time, I've seen it—you know—where it's not worked out so well. Over time, where a, uh, a youth pastor was at this one church, for example, that they still, the, the senior staff—they just wanted to make it the biggest and greatest show on earth. You know, the dueling DJs and the, and the magic acts and everything else—they um, didn't—they weren't really care—they didn't really care about the way they went about ministry as long as they got a lot of people there. Right, And ultimately, that youth pastor had to leave. In good conscience, he could not continue there. And so, unfortunately, that is a last result. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it work well also. It's difficult when you're in a situation. My, I guess my encouragement there would be to be patient with people as they think through it as well. And it's just mm-hmm. difficult to be patient when you want <laughs> to see those changes happen.
0: Right. And maybe more... Uh difficult for youth ministers who are dealing with people over a fairly short period of time. I mean, you know, a senior pastor can look, I've got 20, 30 years with these people.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: You know, youth minister, you got a 16-year-old who in two years is going to be gone. (laughs) Right. Another thing that's striking me personally uh, was your discussion of students who defend Calvinism in their schools, because uh, probably in... History classes and things like that. I would imagine it comes up, and mm-hmm. I, I wondered uh, how do they do that. Uh, do you give guidance on how to do that? And you know, what's been your experience with, with that?
1: Well, it, you know, at church we do teach uh, uh, a Reformed faith. We're not we're mm-hmm. unashamed of that, and we uh, we believe that uh, God saves His people. That He's the one that that comes in by grace and, and regenerates hearts. And, uh, and so it's over time, students are built up in that and we, we see it in all of scripture. I mean, it's, it's difficult to not see it. And so, um, and so for a lot of people that go to, uh, to public schools in the area, um, you know, it does come up in history classes, especially with the American Puritans and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Salem witch trials and, and all <laughs> the rest that it comes up. Oh, these were these staunch Calvinists and, um, and, they, and it's typically portrayed in a negative light, and and so, yeah, it, I've seen our students defend it uh, in class and try to to redirect the caricature that's often portrayed of those North Form Faith. In fact, you know, we we go back and we look at you know, early Baptist. I know there's General and particular Baptists, but you know, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, Lutheran Confessions the. Dutch Reformed faith and the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church and the show through all these denominations, not Methodist, but all the other denominations, that many of their creeds and confessions were Reformed. And, right. uh, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised by that mm-hmm. um, as they're going through history as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I do find a lot of people are surprised by that, you know, discussing even Baptist history, how many How many of the the beloved Baptists, you know, we talk about missions, and, you know, now in the Southern Baptist Convention, there's this big issue about missions and, you know, the resurgence of Calvinism. And, you know, know, most of the missionaries that you have in your minds as the the pinnacle of Southern Baptist missions were probably reformed.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I I don't know if you you heard, uh, there's this uh, conference, Together for the Gospel conference. It went on last week or a couple weeks ago. I can't remember. Um, David Platt spoke on divine sovereignty, the fuel of death, defying missions.
0: I know. I have that on and my that, list of things to listen to. Be, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, who was it? John Piper
1: uh-huh. tweeted,
0: tweeted that yep. that was the, that. The, yeah something like the, the most powerful mission sermon you'd ever heard.
1: I know, that's, that's why I clicked on it. I was like, okay, well, you know, Piper, Piper <laughs> yeah. says it was the most uh, important or significant mission sermon he's ever heard. I'll, I'll, that's a good endorsement. I'll, I'll yeah. listen to it. So um, there is a, it is interesting how, you know, like, for instance, in Acts 13:48, it says that when the Gentiles heard, uh, you know, heard the gospel, heard the good news, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so Paul and Barnabas, there are going around preaching the gospel, That's their task. Their task is not to be successful. Their task is to be faithful in what Mm -hmm. they've been called to do. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. That's God's doing. Um, And I think it it does help you. Like, there is not just this potential of salvation of God's people. There's a certainty about it. And it gives you encouragement, great encouragement, I think, when you go on missions.
0: Right. Well, what struck me personally, again, with that discussion in the book, was my experience as a middle school and a high school biology teacher. I, I've told some people that I occasionally am disheartened to find that some of my Christian students tend to be the most annoying.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: you know, For example, just a week or two ago, I had a student just announce in the middle of class, Jesus doesn't believe in science. And I, I tried to clarify. I thought she misspoke, and I said, are, "Are you trying to ask whether scientists can believe in Jesus?" That's a much more common question. Uh-huh. And no, she clarified. She meant exactly what she said. Jesus doesn't believe in science. And you know, I'm standing there thinking, "What are you talking about?"
1: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's confusing.
0: But I, I have those sorts of things happen all the time. So, and, and this has happened for years. So. A year or two ago, I even talked to the youth minister at our church and you know, said, if there's ever a chance, you know, can I just speak one time to your to the youth group and and just talk about how to be a Christian in the science class? So I did that once. And, you know, one of my main points was don't argue that, you know, first of all, it's just never a good idea to argue with someone who simply knows more than you. Because if, if, if you're in a science class, you're a middle school, high school student in a biology class and you try to argue against evolution or whatever, all the science teacher has to do is mention a bunch of fossils you've never heard of and right, and you right. can't respond to that. So yeah. whether or not the person's right or wrong, you've instantly lost the argument. But I said, yeah. what you can do is just respectfully ask questions. They, they're they not going to get mad at you for asking questions. You know? right. So and that's why I asked about guidance on how to do it and everything, because I think it, it, there is a need for the youth to be witnesses and to be apologists. But I, I see so often them do it in ways that just, I am embarrassed. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, we kind of talk about it sometimes in the reform community that people go and they ask John Calvin into their hearts and all of a sudden they become kind of jerks about the gospel to everybody <laughs> else around them.
0: Right. But, you know, it's not just Calvinists. They, you know,
1: right. Right. I know. Yeah.
0: So, I was interested in that, but the other thing that I just, I don't even know how to explain my my amazement was your discussion on discipleship groups as mm-hmm. safe communities with prayer and accountability and people coming together and you know sharing their struggles and praying for each other, and I just wondered, how does that work with teenagers who are not known for being the kind of people you want to share your struggles with?
1: Right. Maybe back up just for a second um, mm-hmm. to your listeners on this, is that when we talk about the means of grace, so, so if it's not gimmicks, right. what is the alternative? The alternative is a means of grace ministry, and by that we mean that we do the things that, that God has ordained in his word to do as far as ministry goes, and he provides the growth. And so we have targeted five areas in particular, uh, ministry of the word, prayer, the sacraments, gospel motivated service, not just any service, but gospel motivated service Mm -hmm. and grace in our community. And so in this last area of grace in our community, one of the things that we have found very helpful is discipleship groups, older men teaching younger Mm -hmm. men, older women teaching younger women, and these D groups, we've labeled them as both safe and sound, in the sense that safe, Mm -hmm. that they can come there and it is they can be known and loved at the same time. Mm And sound is that it's rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in the Gospel. It's not floating. And so we try to have elements of study and prayer, of accountability. That they Mm -hmm. serve together. They do life together. And so the D group leaders, uh, whom I call youth shepherds, they follow these students from seventh grade all the way through graduation of high school. They get to know them, and they come alongside the parents to assist the parents and become a, another voice into their life. And so they also form these friendships within these D groups that oftentimes I've seen last well through college and into adulthood. Wow. And they can have this time where they confess sin, but not be okay with sin. Yeah. You know, They want to move on. <laughs> they want to be held accountable so that they pursue holiness and righteousness, not in order to gain and earn God's merit or favor, but precisely because God has shown favor to them in the gospel. And, uh, you know, they're called saints or declared saints, and yet they're called to grow in their holiness. And so these D groups are a, kind of a, a backbone to the ministry um, where they have big group teaching times. There's uh, family worship that's emphasized and stressed. But in these D groups, they do life together. They do service together. They form these, this community together
0: to add to that same idea you also mentioned the D groups as a place for visitors to come mm-hmm. so so then i i'm already amazed that you know teenagers are confessing to each other and praying for each other and holding each other accountable mm-hmm. but then you add in a visitor who yep. isn't even part of your church who might be yep. observing all this you know does that complicate the matter
1: yeah and this is the risk that we take uh, and this is, this is an interesting thing you bring up. We've, we've intentionally started doing discipleship evangelism mm-hmm. in the sense, you know, like I think those two are artificially separated. And, and even in the Great Commission, when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go and he says, <laughs> make disciples. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the Great Commission is making disciples. So what we've, what we've tried to do is make the D groups the first place, that those in the D group invite friends into the community of the church instead of Sunday morning because so often people come in slip in slip out of Sunday morning and they're never even noticed a lot of times right. but if they come to a, a smaller group you know ten people or whatever they are prayed for they can share what's going on and they they meet some people and they have some conversation maybe have some cookies or I don't know uh, and then they and then then they're invited to Sunday morning Sunday school or worship or or Wednesday night or something, and, you know, they come and they see a whole row of people that they know, that they've met, and they know this person, and they immediately have a connection in a larger group setting. But this confession of sin, this is what we've seen, and this is the risk. This is kind of the pushback, and Mm -hmm. I realize that, is we, you know, my good friend uh, Tal Prince, he says we give the gift of going second, and what he means by that is we lead through brokenness. And I want to be open. I want to be vulnerable. I'll confess sin. I've been prideful lately or I haven't been disciplined in my time in the Word lately. I'll be, I'll be open and be vulnerable. And, but what I'm doing is I'm giving you the gift of going second. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm taking a risk. I realize that. But I want, to, I want to share my sin, and I'm wanting accountability. I'm wanting prayer here. And what I'm seeing is when, when students come into these D groups for the first time, And they see a group of, let's say, guys, let's say 11th grade guys sitting around a table and they're confessing sin and they're studying the Bible and they're praying together and they're trusting one another. They're just drawn to that. There's nothing like that anywhere else that they can do that. And they're immediately drawn to because they desire that intimacy. They're known and loved. And that's what intimacy is. They're known, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they're loved anyway. And these new students coming in, they're just immediately drawn to, and that's why I call it gospel community or grace-centered community. They're immediately drawn to that and drawn into the life of the church.
0: Well, you know, I'm sure you're busy with your ministry, and I don't know if you've started thinking about your next book yet, but the book I want to see is a book focused on how to do discipleship groups. (laughs) You know, This book book was sort of a, a little introduction to everything, And that was one one thing I wanted to know much more about is to know how to have discipleship groups that do the things that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. One thing that I come across a lot of times in um, talks with people is how do I get youth volunteers? Mm -hmm. I've uh, come across a lot of youth pastors that that's their struggle.
0: Right.
1: And if I could just share a couple things real quick. Sure. Uh, One is I don't call them volunteers. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Volunteer denotes time instead of calling. And so uh, that's why I call them Youth Shepherds or some other title. The um, second thing is I have uh, a couple of events a year, like a Youth Shepherd Retreat, right. that mm-hmm. we just, we kind of pamper them a little bit, but we just say, this is for you. And that becomes not only a training time that we cast a vision and, uh, and some particulars, but it becomes a recruiting thing too. Mm-hmm. Hey, just come with us. Don't have, to, you know, no cost. Um, just, just come and enjoy a uh, time. And so we actually get away from from the church and uh, and talk through vision and ministry. What I stress to people is cast vision, 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 vision all the time. The parents, to, to the leaders, to the students themselves. Why do we do what we do here? Why do we have the means of grace as, our, as a priority? And i tell you, I never asked for volunteers mm-hmm. um, anymore. I used to just wow. go around asking, hey, could you help, could you help? I'm casting vision so much that uh, we have so, we have too many uh, people that want to help. Um, they wow. get excited about <laughs> too a Too many get people. Excited. Yeah, they get excited about a, a, a vision of ministry, mm-hmm. and they want to jump in. Hey, that's great! I, I want to do that. I see the importance and the role of discipleship groups. I want to be a D group leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do training with them. We uh, they do a, they sign a year commitment mm-hmm. um, every year. Uh, to, to work in a number of different ways with, this, with the student ministry. And, um, you know, and this can go with parents, too, if parents are needing extra help to come back to a theologically informed ministry. And that's kind of why I wrote the book, is so people could have some grounding of why we do what we do in our ministries, not gimmicks. What is it? What is it? What does a theologically informed ministry look like? And, I, and I, so that's why I stress to youth pastors all the time, to stress vision. If if vision is not regularly and consistently cast, you're going to oftentimes struggle to find helpers and
0: volunteers. Uh, Yeah, I can definitely see the the struggle. And I'm still kind of getting over the the idea that you have too many volunteers or shepherds, uh, people wanting to commit. And you had mentioned a few minutes ago the idea of these discipleship group leaders and And youth shepherds being with these students for year after year and then often continuing relationships well after and I immediately thought of your one-year agreements which you just mentioned Mm -hmm. so so I'm guessing that most of them continue for more years than just that one year right
1: Right. and sometimes we have to add you know we get too Mm -hmm. many in a group well we've Mm -hmm. got to add a couple more d group leaders or you know, we're always looking for who's going to take up the when the sixth graders roll in or move on up into the youth ministry mm-hmm. into seventh grade, who is going to take this next batch of, of students. Right. Uh, so, we're always kind of looking ahead at what's coming down the pipeline. Is one group getting too big?
0: Right. I would
1: say the magic number, 8 to 10, 8 to 12 is a good size, 10 is a great number. Right. Um, if you get too big, too much more than that, then people don't have enough time to share in those groups, right. which is a key element. And so anyway, that's that's where we're always kind of looking for new people, and that's why it's, a. and every year we we kind of come back to, yes, I will commit for one more year, and I want to, it's not just committing to serve, it's committing to personal abiding in Christ, personal growth, you're kind of recommitting to those, those areas as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing, there were a lot of things that I recognized in your book. We talked about, you know, ecclesiology and, you know, Christian hedonism and, you know, a lot of Timothy Keller's ideas and, you know, all these things. But what I liked was how you applied them all to youth ministry. But then you did add some things here and there. And one that I want to point out is, you know, Doug Fields, when I read his book, more than 10 years ago. I don't remember how long ago. One thing I do remember from that book was a story about one of the, the group leaders who had a business card and happened to be at like McDonald's or something, I think, and, you know, met some teenagers and gave him his little card that said, whatever it was, that he has some title that he also gives them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how that, you know, like you said, you know, raises their status a little bit, you know, makes them more Mm -hmm. a leader and everything. But what I think you added to that when you talked about your one-year commitments was it wasn't just being a discipleship group leader, but you had right. a variety of ways that the right. people could serve and be involved and also be respected in their involvement.
1: Right. Yeah, there's, there's four ways that we do it. Youth Shepherd is a broad term
0: mm-hmm.
1: within that title that we have of Youth Shepherds. We have D-group leaders and co-leaders. Okay. We have a one-on-one kind of follow-up counselor type people. We have activity or event shepherds, if we have a retreat or something, that we need extra hands for. Um, and then we have ministry of presence. These are older adults who, who just come alongside within Sunday school or youth group time or other, ele- other things that we have. Just, they don't really have a particular set goal other than point students to Christ when they have conversations, with them. they're just around. So, we have those are kind of the four areas that we designate within the youth ministry,
0: right? And I, and I just was really impressed by that. And I, I can see how that level of appreciation for the the other adults who are coming to work with you would endear them to want to be involved, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. You know, and when, when you're regular seeing regular the importance of this time in, in students' lives and, and how much they're changing, and the desire for them to grow and to learn. When you're always kind of casting that in front of parents and adults, mm-hmm. you know they're like, "Wow, I, that is important." I, you know, and I'm called to use my gifts in the church. Maybe this is an area that I can use my gifts. And in the way that I, when I do go to ask somebody if they want to be involved in mm-hmm. ministry, the way I go about it is simply, "Hey, I just want you to consider something. Put this mm-hmm. on radar right screen." but uh, I really feel like you would do an excellent job at this. And I don't want you to tell me now. I just want you to consider it. Talk with your wife or if it's a female, talk with your husband or whatever. And just think through this and I'd uh, love to talk with you more about it at some point. And that's all I do initially. And uh, I'll, I'll revisit them later uh, very intentionally, very purposefully. And through that, a lot of times I've, they've, they've seen that they, can, they are to be equipped and used in the church, and that through doing this, God grows them in their faith. <laughs> um, and so they, there's, they see the benefit all around of, of doing this. One thing that comes up a lot, I'll just mention this briefly, okay. is how do you evaluate your ministry? And, and I, I put a, uh, an appendix in there, but if God is the one who gives the growth, if he's the one that's really the one that gives success to your ministry, how do you evaluate your current ministry? your current mm-hmm. ministry to students. And, and I would say just a couple things. One, is there a regular diet of the means of grace? And so when you're thinking through your calendar for students, um, have you done service lately? Have you encouraged service lately? Have you encouraged church membership and the, the role of, um, of the sacraments of Lord's Day worship, for example? Um, have you have you spent some time, have you carved out enough time to prepare your lessons exegetically and expositionally? And are you seeing an increase of love and knowledge of God? Do you see spiritual fruit in the students? Um, are your messages, do they tend to be more moralistic than gospel-centered? Um, those are just some, some things that you can do, just stepping, taking a step back and evaluating your ministry and thinking, all right, is this, are we on track here? Um, and getting feedback from you know, those around you.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. Absolutely.
1: Thanks. Good night. Bye-bye.
0: Brian Cosby's new book, Giving Up Gimmicks, Reclaiming Youth Ministry from an Entertainment Culture, offers, as he said in this interview, a theological focus on youth ministry. I really appreciated this book because, first, it has a strong focus on the gospel message and emphasizes that youth ministry is gospel ministry. Second, I appreciated its strong focus on ecclesiology keeping youth ministry as part of the church. Too often, youth ministries become almost separate churches for teenagers. But the gospel calls all believers into one church. And finally, I appreciated Dr. Cosby's ideas on discipleship groups as gospel-centered places of fellowship, prayer, and accountability. In a culture where youth and adults are, as he said, both busy and bored, a strong, theological, gospel-centered ministry is what all of us need and what every church leader has been called to develop. Thank you for listening to Christlike Thinking. We always welcome listener feedback, so feel free to send an email to christlikethinking at gmail.com. And join us next time.